You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we hear from Colleen Hanabusa following the announcement that she is backing off taking a high-paying consultant's job with the Hawaii Authority for Rapid Transit on the rail project. She says those who know her have responded, saying that was a better decision following public outcry over reports that the contract was a potentially worth close to a million dollars. No one else applied for the job, and it came at the same time that Hart cut in-house positions and other contracts. I don't understand why uh, no one else put in. And then this is not the only contract, because you know there's one that's out there, and I'm not sure what the terms are because I didn't really look at it, but there is a federal one as well. And the federal one, I'm not quite sure who they awarded it to, but I know that they awarded it at the same time and with the same set of uh, circumstances, I guess, in terms of a six-year. And I think what people did not know is that when that initial contract came in, and I, you know, I saw it for the first time. It was a six-month contract, and that's what you were going to bid on. And then all of a sudden, uh, they issued an addendum where they changed it to basically 18 months and then the total period of six years. I think, and I'm just guessing, that the federal one was the same way. So I'm not sure why uh, no one um, applied for this contract. I was surprised when they said no one else applied. I had thought that there were people who would apply. And the raises that were built in, I mean, was that something you negotiated? I mean, you're a labor attorney. No. It was, they just asked you to fill it in. And it's options after the 18 months, and then it's options. So it's not even set. So, you know, it's a matter of you putting in what you think. And the reason is because these contracts are what I would consider to be triple net. In other words, you've got to pay all your GET out of it. You've got to pay all expenses. If, for example, the request is made that you go to D.C. to um, negotiate uh, something with the FTA or you go to San Francisco with the region, that's all covered out of a lump sum. So it really was an anticipation of what do you think your expenses will be during this period of time. Were you surprised at the backlash? No, I, I was not surprised, and the reason is that I, I always assume a couple of things. One is that the sentiment about heart is um, not, I mean, it was, it was bad when I went on in 2015, but it's just sort of gotten worse over the years. So I think heart in and of itself is uh, like a lightning rod. And I've always told people that, you know, the problem that I have is that because people know me, and I'm not one of the the people who've been around for so long, but because people know who I am, I said, you know, I'll be as much of a lightning rod as as Hart. So there's a double whammy that I think will will occur. So I I was not surprised at it. I was surprised when people thought that there was some something uh, like it was plotted for or something like that. And I saw the contract and its terms and was as surprised as everyone when I took it off the web. Did Mayor uh, Rick Langiardi approach you about taking on this position on the heart board? Yes. I had found out that someone who replaced me, who is Mr. Uh, well, it's Glenn Nohara, someone I've known for a very long time and I respect very much. And in fact, when I left in 2016, I put together all the information that I had in a way that I thought would help him come up to speed very quickly. And I told him, okay, you start in this box and this side and you work your way through. And one thing you need to do is uh, attend the PMOC meetings. And my understanding is he was the board member who actually did that. And, and for listeners who don't know what the POMC meeting is? It's the Project Management Oversight Consultant. So the feds, the FDA, mm-hmm. has what they call a, a PMOC assigned to this project. And that PMOC actually was there from the late 2000s. You know, I think the, the PMOC reports were just being made available to the board. Mm-hmm. And Definitely, when we inquired about uh, attending the, the meetings that they had, we were told that uh, board members were not welcome. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but you made a point of going. Yeah, yeah but we, yeah. we just did. And yeah. so this whole idea of Middle Street, 
existed in 2016, and that study is done. And the difference with that, a lot of it is, is duplicative of what you find in the city center guideway stations. The difference to me is we actually had monetary values put on the 2016 one, and I'm sure those figures five years later need to be updated. What do you want to underscore as you take on this position, you know, amidst these calls to hit the pause button on the rail project? What I'd like the public to understand is that I, I don't think we should have a knee-jerk reaction. We need to understand exactly what the cost is to Middle Street and then Ford, and also we need to understand what the costs are for the alternatives. And, you know, the, the reason we're in this position is because when I got on the board, I told them the undergrounding of lines would be an important and a costly part. And at that time, they said, don't worry, we have $70 million, which I said, you don't understand undergrounding if that's all you think that it's worth. So we need to know whether the alternatives are only as people think, which is to dig up Dillingham and to go – through that program, you know, does the program of potentially moving the line, the the, the guideway, uh, does that work? And and if you're going to incur the expense and the wrath of the FTA by deviating from the FFTA, then the question is maybe we should look at what exactly is the best way. However, I am not convinced that we need to pause, and I am not convinced that alternatives do not exist out there where we can do it. For example, relocating the utilities themselves without undergrounding them. You know, can, can the utilities go on a parallel street? And when I was on the board, I asked people if you could run the utilities in the rail itself, you know, in the, in the structure itself. Could that be done? And they told me no. But it seems to be one of the alternatives they're discussing now in that confidential memo. So these are things that I think we have to we have to look at and we have to figure out how to minimize the expense but also you need the conversation with the FTA and to negotiate some sort of outcome. So pausing it at Middle Street to me is not something that we should rush to because one there are funds and two more importantly than that we're going to plan this they need to have that discussion. Do you agree, though, that we need to have uh, better data? I agree, and I've always been an advocate of that. We need the best information possible, and that's why I've always been an advocate of looking at the data that the PMOC has given by heart. And, you know, I don't know since uh, Laurie Kahikina has taken over what that's like. All I know is what it was like in the past. And when is your first board meeting? July 1, or after July 1. So whenever the first meeting is after July 1. Okay. All right. Well, you've got your work cut out for you. Thank you very much. Okay. Good talking to you. Uh, That was former Congresswoman Colleen Honobusa, who is returning to the Heart Board as a, uh, for a second stint as an unpaid member. She announced yesterday she is not taking the job as a consultant to Heart, following public outcry that no one else applied for the position. The contract was potentially worth close to a million dollars and came as Heart cut other positions and contracts, thus the backlash. politics of rail. Earlier this week, we reached out to Hawaii architect Scott Wilson. He's the past president of the American Institute of Architects here in Hawaii and head of what had been a transportation committee that looked into the impacts of rail in our Hawaii Nei. Wilson reflected uh, on how a move to salvage rail is now looking to reroute rail now that the completion date has been pushed way off to 2030. Once the elevated rail gets onto Nimitz Highway, it is it is it has a colossal uh, obstruction to our harbor, to our views, to any connections. You know, our connections to the ocean. All of that suffers irreversible damage. 
And so when the AIA was looking at this issue, when that transportation committee was was turning the stone over, what are some of the the points that you folks were trying to underscore? Well, this goes all the way back to 1990 with Mayor Fossey. Uh, He he wanted to do elevated rail on Nimitz Highway, and we started doing drawings, not me personally, but the AIA's members produced renderings of what this would look like running on Nimitz Highway, and it became the basis of our opposition to elevated rail in 1990. And uh, fortunately, Councilmember Mancho defeated the funding, and so the process, I mean, the whole prospect of that elevated rail died in 1990, but it got revived in 2004 by Mayor Henneman. So once again, at that point, we were doing computer simulations of the stations and the guideway, and and the same problems, the same concerns came up again, that this was a huge impact to the Malcolm Mackay views downtown and in Chinatown. It impacts the historic districts of Chinatown and the capital district. It, It is a problem of gigantic scale and and these enormous modern materials in juxtaposed with historic buildings such as the Dillingham Transportation Building and all of the buildings in Chinatown. So there's just a colossal negative impact that cannot be mitigated in any way. To say there are mitigation efforts is a is a hollow promise because there is no way to mitigate a forty foot tall concrete guideway with stations in downtown. And there, there was one station that was supposed to go by the uh, Hawaiian Electric plant down there, yes. by the waterfront. And that's, that has continued to be uh, fought by the landowner, the private landowner across the street from that Hawaiian Electric station. And it is my uh, understanding that the heart engineers have tried to relocate that downtown station over by Fort Street Mall just to basically... <laughs> find some place to to dump out the people where they won't have objections from private landowners in the area. In this moment, in 2021, we have a a moment really in which a a number of unique conditions have have coalesced and caused us really, I think, a huge motivation to do a timeout, to do a pause and study. If ever there was a moment in this in, in the whole history of this project where we really are getting so many messages to to stop and 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 rethink, it is right now. And I think what's different from what the AIA was originally concerned with in say 2009 is that we now have sea level rise uh, to consider, um, and and the impacts to coastal Honolulu uh, areas is now, you know, irrefutable. Uh, We're going to have something like four feet of sea level rise between now and 2050, I believe it is. That is a whole nother element, which has been acknowledged by a lot of different state agencies and even city and county agencies, and yet it has not been, has not been feeding into any decisions by by heart and, and the rail project. So what happened to the transit committee with the AIA? Well, the, the AIA's transit committee um, kind of really was at its peak in 2007, 2008, and, and it culminated in a presentation to the, uh, Governor Lingle at the state capitol in 2010. At that point, they came out with their report. They did their panel, panel presentation, and their findings were solidly in favor of some sort of street-level rail, a light rail system. But but we had done everything we could. The construction began in 2010, and by 2016, the AIA decided the board of directors, uh, the newly elected board of directors, decided they were just going to go dark on this topic. They told the Urban Design Committee and the Transit Task Force to basically shut up and Stop talking about rail. It was it was a political decision, and this continues to be a politically driven project. So we we finally have realized, I think everybody, the public has, is that the only people that are going to change this are the mayor and the city council, and it has to be a political decision. I recall the 
argument against street level is that you have collisions and then you have delays that it was going to be a far more efficient system if it was above ground. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I think some accommodation was made for, um, uh, you know, some sea level rise, but I'm not sure, you know, like at Middle Street where there's some problematic areas down there by the viaduct. I'm not familiar enough with that section myself. But, you know, I was driving by the stadium and I just, you know, was shaking my head because I know there was a plan to do the interim service so that people could at least get to the games. Folks on the west side, mm -hmm. Pearl City, could get to the stadium to watch the games and now <laughs> that's now, being shut now down. it's not even going to be a stadium. Uh, so that that's, uh, yeah, we it, it, you really... From an urban planning point of view, you, you really have to shake your head at this new pattern. And I think in terms of street-level rail, I, I think that is just something that we would really have to seriously study again now that sea level rise is clearly part of our future. My feeling is that street-level rail still could be implemented, say, at Middle Street, but we would have to completely reroute it to, to higher ground. And that higher ground could be North King Street. There's no question. North King is out of the flood zone even in the next 60 years, 100 years. But, again, I don't think we should be committing to any future beyond Middle Street right now. We need to simply time out, pause, and, and really study the alternatives. I also took a wrong turn uh, over the weekend and ended up by the airport and ended up looking at the guideways over at the airport, and I thought – at least can we get people to the airport, <laughs> you know? Yes, but from where? <laughs> yeah, well, I, there are then the other problems with the, the trains, right? The wheels and the tracks, and so yeah. that's and not I, even I know, even and, and those are technical glitches. I don't even want to yeah, put you that go there. the mix. <laughs> Obviously, that is, it's going to be extra cost. There, it, it should have been addressed by the makers of the rail, you know, cars, and Hitachi is supposedly charge of track and trains. So I say that that is a glitch that, you know, can be expected in any large project. I guess just, you know, looking back over the last 30 years and, and seeing what has been paid out and, you know, you just want to give the people something. But obviously, yeah, we're at a, a juncture where these things need to be discussed again. My feeling is I like the sort of plan C that Joe Uno has put forth in the heart board, I just think that we have potentially a fully functioning multimodal system that would end for the moment, would pause rail at Middle Street or Lagoon Drive or both, and then you have room down there to implement a, a rapid bus system that could radiate on out to all other parts of the city. Pausing rail at this point, it still gives us a working system. And, and can get people on trains finally and at least start them out in, in East Kapolei and then get them as far as Middle Street. And if you, if you combine that with bus, bus lanes on Nimitz into downtown, you have, you have a very you know, fully functioning uh, mass transit system that it will be a huge alternative to, to car congestion. But at this point, then, uh, we shouldn't expect to hear too much out of AIA. No. AIA has been dark since December of 2016. I have been a part of a Salvage the Rail team that has been working with Hawaii Thousand Friends. And, and the Salvage the Rail effort uh, and a group of architects, kind of, we migrated over to that, that position, which was, again, street-level rail from Middle Street to downtown. And we, we hadn't really gone into the route. Obviously, in 2018 is when all these sea level rise reports started coming out. So what happened was that the salvage the rail team that had been advocating street level rail, once the sea level rise reports started coming out, we kind of morphed that um, effort into what we call reroute the rail. Reroute the rail, okay. RerouteTheRail.org <laughs> is a website that explains the new thinking. But again, I think this is just one of, of many alternatives that should be really studied. We were thinking really long-term and like, how, how would UH be served? Because we always, and you know, everyone knows that UH traffic is a major part of our, of our congestion. So we were trying to, you know, wear the urban planning hat and really come up with a long-term people mover system 
city. How long has Reroute the Rail been around? Reroute the Rail began in 2019. There was a very moving testimony from John Henry Felix, also in 2019. He was on the heart board. He wrote a a strong uh, op-ed, you know, saying, time out, stop it at middle. He he is no longer on the heart board, but we have Joe Uno, who's kind of a John Henry Felix version two, and he's really saying the same thing. There's lots of room. Uh, there's a multimodal center at Middle Street right now, and so it makes perfectly good sense to just pause the system. And again, you're not you're not jeopardizing your full funding agreement because you're just you're just delaying. You're, you're not saying that, okay, we're, we're pulling the plug, we're not mm-hmm. cutting this thing off, we're just continuing to work. And that was Hawaii architect Scott Wilson reflecting on rail and talking about a move to pause the $12 billion project and possibly reroute rail. When you tune into HPR, you often hear voices from right here in the islands. I'm Gene Schiller, and on today's Morning Cafe... Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's All Things Considered, and I'm Dave Lawrence. I'm Derek Malama, and welcome to Kani Kapila Sunday. In fact, one-third of our shows are hosted right here by the HPR team. They bring you news and music from here and around the world and put it in context for local listeners like you. To learn more, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Virtual Open House Sunday, May 16th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. The state rolled out its pilot vaccine passport this week, making inter-island travel easier for those vaccinated in Hawaii. Hawaii Lieutenant Governor Josh Green talked with the Conversations' Russell Subiono about the program and the time frame for expanding it beyond inter-island travel in the future. What do people need to do to get their passport? Is it similar to uploading their COVID test results to the Safe Travel Hawaii website? Yeah, it's almost exactly the same. A uh, couple rules. People have to finish their vaccination and have their immunity in place, which means both shots of the Pfizer or Moderna plus 14 days or the Johnson Johnson shot plus 14 days. And then after that 14-day period, you are eligible to use it as your vaccine travel exception. Some people say vaccine passport. And you just upload it in the safe travel section where it says documents. What will it enable travelers to do? Is it just inter-island travel or is it trans-Pacific as well? For phase one, it's just inter-island travel, and it has to be a vaccination that was completed in Hawaii so that we can check it if necessary. After phase one, we hope to use it for travel from the mainland for our residents to Hawaii, and then phase three will be when we open it up to the mainland with the same criteria, except that you would have been able to get your vaccine anywhere. And we need partners that we're putting in place to verify vaccinations. So it's part of a a phased-in approach to enhance safe travel. And if people happen to not want to be vaccinated, then they can just use the pre-test like before. Either the COVID test or the 10-day quarantine? Exactly. Okay. You said the reason that the vaccinations are limited to having been done in Hawaii, it's just what you're able to verify at this point in time. That's right. The governor wanted to stick with a uh, basic process that we could verify if necessary. So when we upload it, we have a lot of capacity to check vaccination records here. If you've done it at Queens or Hawaii Pacific Health or Kaiser or at the Department of Health, we can check. So we have artificial intelligence programs that can check some of these basic pieces of information. So I don't think it's going to be a big problem. I don't think significant numbers of people will defraud us because it's a federal document. It comes with big fines. The 
felony, I understand, if you if you falsify a federal document. I don't think people will do that, but Trump wanted to just be safe and start slowly. So that's the approach. If this goes well like it did this morning, in two weeks I'll ask him to expand it to our travel from the mainland for local residents that we can confirm. And then a few weeks later to the mainland travelers wherever they are, whether it's in New York, California, Florida, anywhere in the mainland. Aside from potential fines for fraud, are there any other safeguards in place to prevent fraud? Well, there are because it gets checked and then we actually check the card. This is very important for listeners to know. We do insist that people bring their card with them. So you upload it, but then bring your card because we can check the person's birth date on the card and you can tell whether the card is legit or not. I saw dozens and dozens of people today and they were happy to show me their cards and we were having a good chat about it. Over 7,000 people have already uploaded their vaccination cards. There does not seem to be much worry about privacy. Most people are just really eager to not have to do the test when they travel. I had my daughter do it on Sunday. She said the process was quick and easy. She was a little worried that it didn't show up when she checked Monday. She's traveling on Thursday. But I told her, hey, you know, it it doesn't start till Tuesday. So I imagine today the QR code started popping up. I think that's probably right. You know, there were uh, there were some process challenges with all of these safe travels programs. Uh, But I've been really proud of Doug Murdoch and his team. They've really stepped up, Uh, though there are occasional moments that uh, concern people. We've had over 3 million people go through the Safe Travels program and, you know, on multiple occasions amended it and improved it. So uh, they've been up to the task. And it's clear because a lot of people have traveled here safely and our economy is starting to return. So it's been a very important part of this experience. I traveled up to Alaska earlier this year and just came back from the Big Island, and it's been very smooth. Yeah, who would have thought? Back on October 15th when we started, it, it felt a little bumpy. But yeah. since then, people have gotten very accustomed to it. And, you know, I've, I've taken trips two, three, four times a month uh, between the islands. And I've just really appreciated the ability to do that to work. So uh, I think a lot of us understand when people get frustrated. But also, when you're talking about millions of transactions, uh, we've had a, a remarkably low rate of uh, concern. Lieutenant Governor, I appreciate your time. No problem. All right. Take care. That was Lieutenant Governor Josh Green talking with our Russell Subiono about the state's pilot vaccine passports program, which kicked off yesterday. To vaccinate or not to vaccinate, to mask or not to mask, where are the political lines drawn when it comes to dealing with this latest phase of the pandemic? We turn to our political analyst, Neil Milner, on The Long View today. Good morning, Neil. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, you know, we're, we're into another phase here. Uh, what's the pulse on our, uh, our, our uh, political patient? <laughs> well, I think that the uh, one way to say it is that we're in much better shape health-wise and science-wise in terms of what we know about it, but things are much more complicated now because it's this combination of um, moving back into something called normal, deciding how you react to this new normality, what you do and what you don't do. And I got particularly interested in in this from two pieces. One is Emma Green's piece in The Atlantic recently where she talks about how progressives, especially very liberal people, are essentially not following the science by trying to behave in ways that are more strict than the CDC says. Um, And she says, you know, that has costs also. But in the course of that, in the course of her discussion, and in the course of a podcast on 538 where she was on and others, you get a sense of the more complicated story and that's the more interesting one that i think and it's the more human one because it involves how we behave from day to day does it just boil down to comfort zone you know i mean we hear the science and then i don't know 
Hey, I, I'm a trained professional. That's not jargony enough for me, uh, Catherine. <laughs> no, no, it, you're right. Comfort zone has something to do with it, but it's what goes into comfort zone that is interesting. I mean, part of it for a long time, your, your comfort zone in many ways was defined by the way everything else is defined right now, partisanship. And that played an enormous role, and it, it played an enormously polarizing role, and to some extent that still exists. But I think what we've begun to find out is that people's reaction to this very much fits into the general notions that we have about um, how people assess risk and what they put into these uh, considerations. So if you take the idea that some people don't want to send their kids back to school and some progressive, there have been some awful fights in some communities where people on the left have really attacked school officials for wanting to come back. It makes you think about the broader issue. Look, personal comfort involves whom you learn where you learn your science. That is, we're not scientists. We read, um, we read and learn about science from others, and much of that has to do with whom we trust. And we trust certain people, and we don't trust others. And among both, among everybody, really, there is a distrust of institutions generally, and you find that on the left and the right, even in regard to the CDC. And one of the, and the other thing is the kinds of values, the kinds of experiences, and the kinds of personal stories that you listen to and that you absorb about, um, about uh, COVID and about risk. One of my favorites is not a full story, but Emma Green mentions that Fauci says he's still not comfortable eating in a restaurant. Um, he knows, of course he knows all the data, and he knows that the odds are in his favor very much so if he does so. But people assess risk and assess what their comfort zone is on the basis of lots of different stuff, and it's not always very rational. And by irrational, I don't mean crazy. I mean that it's not a kind of cost-benefit analysis that you do. And that's what you're going to see much more of, I think, as, uh, as things get to the stage we get at, that you're not going to – it's not just about the science. And, of course, some stuff is just – unilaterally bad. The anti-vax stuff is bad. The way Donald Trump lied about the, uh, the sciences and about cures, that's bad. But there's a lot of stuff in the middle where people assess their own risks. Um, you know, do I wear masks? Can I go to the playground? Even if you know the rules, you're going to consider other sorts of things. So that in lots of ways, as we move toward more, what's the word, normal, we're also moving in the direction of using our normal ways to make decisions and uh, to assess risk. And normal doesn't mean easy, doesn't mean it's always clear. And remember that science isn't always clear. One of the things that science does is to make things more complicated by showing how it depends, by showing, well, it depends on this, it depends on that. So I think what's going to be um, what we're all going to live through, and I know I'm living through it personally because I'm going to travel for the first time uh, in a couple of weeks, is all these kinds of things that we bring to bear on the basis of what's comfort, um, you know, what's in our comfort zone and what isn't. Well, I've only been out to dinner once, and I admit I was scared. But then I had such a great time, yeah. I missed it. <laughs> I really miss going out to eat. No, the, the first time that I went out for uh, a beer outdoors with a couple of people, it felt like, this is a long time ago to make the comparison, a first date. <laughs> uh, I mean, you wanted to, I, I wanted to talk all the time the way I do on this show. Um, and I could feel the kind of adrenaline kicking in. No, no, for sure. You just forget how... how um, how much that's built into you. But what's also built into you is a kind of process, a kind of uh, eccentric, wacky, but human process of how you, ex uh, how you um, assess risk all, all the time. And it's not, a very, it's not a very scientific process. Science helps, um, but it's a much more normal part of decision-making. And because everybody's in a different state of, you know, vaccination, I have to share with the listeners that... Uh, you know, uh, I had uh, uh, an, an experience where uh, uh, my car broke down on the poly, and there was no shoulder. And I was told by the tow uh, company that I couldn't, you know, jump in with the driver because of COVID. And my other option was to go with the cops and be in the back of a blue and white. Uh, 
and, you know, and another instance where I went to a car dealership for a test drive and, and, you know, one guy was fine with it with the windows down with our masks on and, and the other company said, nope, because of COVID, you're on your own. You drive it, your test drive it yourself. Yeah, and I, I mean, to me what that shows is that in a society in which we have an enormous amount of good science, excellent science, and, and people have ignored some of that at their own risk, the, the general rules of science and the general guidelines of science get mixed in with your own individual situations and the situations of the people that you, you know, to have. You could look for a long time to see what the CDC says about tow trucks, <laughs> uh, right? Or what Mazda dealers you can, you know, you can test drive, but, uh, you know, you probably got a Mercedes dealer. Uh, you can't. It's not there. And so people fill the gaps as best they can. Um, it's a reminder to me that once you get past the really crazy partisan stuff that was out there, the, all the just the discussions, I don't want to say um, uh, just the discussions about freedom and personal space and liberty and all of that, and follow the science. Once you get past those jargons on both sides, things get much more complicated and much more um, rich, I guess, in a human sense. And that's what we're going to be seeing. Yeah, well, I guess with my comfort zone, I, I still am keeping an eye on the news to see what comes out of India and what's happening in some hot you spots. You bet, and and it you know, and you can get the statistics on how you know you can get some kind of numbers about odds there. But it's it's essentially that's another thing that we know about um, about medicine and health that people respond much more to stories about other people in pain than they do about statistics, and so. India, with that awful situation, is a good example. It stays in our head. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Neil, and safe travels. Uh, you too. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'll talk to you beforehand, but okay. thank you. All right. Okay. Bye. Neil Milner is a retired professor of political science. He joins us as a contributing editor with his segment, The Long View. The union that represents thousands of public school teachers will see a new leader. Uh, that's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Suvon Lee joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. So tell us about this new uh, leader of the Hawaii State Teachers Association. <laughs> sure. He's not quite the leader yet, um, but Osa Tui Jr., who is currently the vice president of the HSTA, is going to take over the leadership in July from the current president, Corey Rosenlee. Uh, Tui was voted in by HSTA members during February elections where he went unopposed. So this is going to be the new face of the HSTA. So where does he hail? What's his background? <laughs> yeah, sure. Osa is a longtime HSTA member. He's been part of the organization since 1998. He um, has a degree in math education, and he is a registrar at McKinley High School. Um, he's been part of the negotiations committee. He has also been um, part of the HSTA leadership as vice president, like I said before, and he takes over at an interesting time for the union. Um, we have a search for a current su superintendent um, underway because, uh, as we know, Christina Kishimoto is not seeking renewal of her term. She steps down at the end of July. So there's going to be a lot of new uh, leadership changes coming in the education landscape here in Hawaii soon. Right. And we should mention that uh, Corey Rosenley has put his uh, hat uh, his name in the hat for that position. And the union was really, um, uh, you know, played a big role in pushing Kishimoto out. Absolutely. Um, as far as the fact that Corey Rosenley is vying for the interim superintendent role, at least, we do know that he applied and he has said so himself. He is interested in leading the statewide school system. Um, it would be interesting to see if uh, that does happen indeed. Of course, this process is overseen by the Board of Ed, so it's up to them to select a new person. Um, but uh, um, as you mentioned, the union and the, and the superintendent and the DOE leadership this past year – 
they really locked horns over how safe it was to bring kids back in classrooms during the pandemic. The union union was really urging um, a delay in reopening until it was safe for teachers to come back amongst their kids. Um, so we really did see just a um, a force of, of actions and, and sort of um, debates just playing out in the public in the last year. And of course, the union being who they are, they're very powerful as far as mobilizing their um, their teachers and their members. And we saw a lot of pandemic press conferences coming from Rosalie um, over the past year. Ultimately, Kishimoto decided uh, not to seek a renewal, as we know, but many people attribute the union's role in leading to that decision. And, you know, you're, uh, you've reported that the union lobbied successfully for a bonus, $2,200 bonus for teachers uh, from the state lawmakers. That surprised me. That came out at the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. As we know, um, the session just wrapped up very recently, the legislative session. And in House Bill 613, which was a federal appropriations bill, we saw this uh, provision tucked in at the very end calling for a $2,200 uh, stipend for all um, uh, teachers, including part-time and full-time and charter school teachers um, 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 at the um, for their hard work over the past year. Now, if you talk to lawmakers, they won't say this is a bonus. They'll say this this is a means to retain teachers during a very uh, vulnerable time for the teacher workforce and that this is a, um, a way to retain them. Um, um, we see this playing out right now. Of course, the governor has come forward and said that this was out of the lawmakers' purview to insert this teacher bonus when this should have been bargained. We've seen other public union worker um, unions come forward and like the HGEA who represents principals saying that this was unconscionable quote unquote so um, but the it, this just reflects the fact that the HSTA was able to successfully lobby for such a um, for such a bonus on behalf of their members and I think that if you talk to teachers themselves they would be very um, pleased with how the organization has represented their interests under the leadership of Rosen Lee but it will be interesting to see how uh, Osatui Jr. comes in and um, sticks to some of the ongoing policies, sticks to some of the ongoing goals by the union, which is to um, place highly qualified teachers in classrooms and continue to advocate for better pay. Um, but his style will, will likely be very different from Corey's. Okay. Well, um, I know your story mentions that he is the, the, the nickname, the Memo King, and we're <laughs> going to tease our listeners with that. So if they want to find out about that, uh, they can read your story. <laughs> but thanks Great. so much. Great. Thank you. That was reporter Suvon Lee with today's reality check. reality check. To read her story, visit sybilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with Joyful Return, a museum-wide exhibition featuring a presentation of modern and contemporary highlights from the permanent collection, honolulumuseum.org. Senator Mitt Romney shouted down at the Utah GOP convention this month. And I don't hide the fact that I wasn't a fan of our last president's character issues. Marginalizing Trump critics, changing election law, embracing lies. What does it mean to be a Republican in 2021? And what does it say about where the party is headed? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute with University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. He shares a story of an extinct songbird. This week's Manu Minute was made with recordings from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Like many of our native Hawaiian forest birds, the Kauai O'o is now extinct. A very small population of this species made it into the 1980s in the highest forest near the top of Kauai, when the last known individual was recorded singing its beautiful and haunting song to a mate that no longer existed. 
The loss of these birds was especially tough because they represent a lineage that had been in Hawaii for millions of years before Kauai even rose out of the ocean. These beautiful birds had rich black plumage with bright yellow tufts of feathers above their legs, which were often important components in the finest Hawaiian feather work. Kauai o'o fed primarily on nectar of various native flowers, and the causes for their extinction were similar to those for many other native Hawaiian birds, and include habitat destruction and introduced predators and disease. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to supporting the Hakalau Refuge and conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More on helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. A new project, a pilot project, to help those who have lost their jobs get retrained to do remote work is getting underway. HBR's Kuvehirishi joins us now to tell us all about it. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, so the pandemic, if it's taught us anything, it's that we are vulnerable, especially our workforce. And so the Remote Ready Hawaii pilot program was there to, as you say, help our workforce become more resilient and take those. Right now we've got a little more than... 58,000 unemployed here uh, in Hawaii, still a lot of work, get them back into the workforce and into positions that perhaps can be a bit more resilient to uh, the tourists not coming or uh, businesses shutting down locally and having to be sequestered at home. So uh, we've got the first cohort of workers began training at the end of April, uh, early May, and they're going to be trained in customer service represent, uh, representation and also in business development representatives uh, to work on teams uh, with companies on the mainland that may need that sort of help. And so this first cohort is in there, and through that experience, some of the initial challenges uh, were uh, digital literacy, right? Folks who may not even know how to use the computer, let alone uh, get online, and also broadband access in areas of Hawaii that are still sort of in the dark. And so when you're talking about having a customer representative, you've been on the phone before, you get on the line, and and it all of a sudden cuts off. Those types of issues are things uh, that came up in this process. And so that's sort of the next step in terms of where the state should perhaps put funnel its resources to make sure that more of Hawaii's workforce can uh, join the digital global digital economy. So with this uh, uh, first group, then how many people are we talking about? Nearly 100 in the first group. They are uh, actively recruiting for the second cohort. Uh, but what they've also noticed is that there are folks who may not need the program to move online, but perhaps just the broadband access or a connection to the resources in terms of trainings available online that they can uh, go to or uh, finding out where these jobs are, these remote work jobs. And so that's sort of the next step for this pilot program. Uh, we did uh, get to hear from Bert Lum, of course, uh, the host of Bite Marks Cafe, but also the broadband strategy officer for uh, the Department of uh, Business, Economic Development and Tourism. Uh, and he sort of convened at the beginning of the pandemic this broadband hui that was already talking about some of these issues in terms of digital literacy needs and broadband access needs across Hawaii and how that would be critical as a foundation for any type of workforce development initiative to get folks uh, involved in the digital bro broadband economy. And so here's Lum talking about what is called the Digital Equity Declaration, uh, which is the vision that's sort of carrying these efforts forward. We came up with this model, broadband for all, and all stands for access, literacy, and livelihood. It's not just getting, you know, fat pipes and cable landings. It's also connecting rural communities, communities that were previously perhaps even disenfranchised. And ultimately what we want to achieve is how do we bring Hawaii really in a robust fashion into the 21st century, not just to use the internet to watch Netflix, is how do we create the, the environment for economic diversity, leveraging the, the broadband platform as well as the digital technologies to move us, move us as a state, in, as a player, you know, in the global market. 
So LUM is already coming up with an infrastructure plan or is working towards an infrastructure plan with this broadband hui to figure out what those black spots are across the state. So reaching out to find that data to pretty much boost that up so everyone can be a part of this next step. Uh, the Workforce Development Council also started free digital literacy workshops uh, at uh, in partnership with Hawaii State Libraries and uh, the Adult School at Windward and also uh, in Waipahu. So what's coming out of this is really a, a broad spectrum of, of help and support to help the workforce transition uh, post-pandemic. Yeah, I mean, if any, if anything that the, the pandemic has taught us is that, yeah, we need to bone up on our tech skills. <laughs> exactly. And for those who already have those, perhaps have those digital literacy skills, uh, one thing that was mentioned was that there were certifications that came online during 2020 from Google, from Amazon, who said, forget the four-year degree, come and do our couple of months of certification, and we'll get you involved in in what um, in a global economy, digital economy, right? Get them working, yeah. making money, getting a paycheck. <laughs> exactly. And for the pilot program, they are actually uh, paid while they train, and then after that, uh, placed within the company known as Insta Teams uh, to start and take that job uh, to the next level. But they can also go ahead and and find a job elsewhere with the skills that they've gained. Okay. And then where do people go if they want to find out about this? They are working on a work, uh, website specifically for Remote Ready Hawaii, uh, but right now everything uh, lies within DBET. So they can go to the, the uh, Department of Business, Economic Development and Tourism's website and also InstaTeams, which is the name of the company that's doing the training. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. We have been talking to HBR reporter Kuvehi Raishi about a new pilot project helping the unemployed get trained to do remote work. You can read her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we have to go, but tomorrow we head to Kauai. They're bringing back a pipe organ to life, the pathway to an upcoming concert this weekend. We want to hear your thoughts on rail. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Catch up on Mono Minute or any of our stories by listening to The Conversation podcast on the HPR mobile app or going to our conversation page of our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.